Hello and welcome to your guide to the good stuff. I'm your host, Jim Graber. Life is too short not to enjoy every moment of it, so we're going to share with you the tips, tricks, tools, and strategies to help make your day-to-day life easier and more enjoyable. Plus, we're going to help you create those special moments, the ones that lead to lifetime memories, all without breaking the bank, because you deserve it. Hello and welcome to today's episode, Some Good Reads. My last episode was on the importance of always growing and how reading is a large part of that. I wanted to share with you some of the best things I've read in the last year to give you some ideas of what to try. I mentioned in the past how interested I've been with World War II. I've read a ton of books on the overview and technical aspects of the war, along with watching many documentaries, and now I'm into reading more personal accounts, biographies, personal stories, and books that recreate events from personal accounts, including historical fiction. I've been reading a book series from Lee Jackson called After Dunkirk that centers around a fictional family from England where the various members end up at historical moments in the war along with major figures. The dialogue is taken from diaries, eyewitness accounts, and news stories. The author researches as much detail as possible about the events and then weaves the story around the family members giving their perspective of what it was like to be there, even though they weren't. It's a pretty neat way to read history. Many of the stories in the book have led me to research even more, and I've discovered events I had never heard of. I discovered Virginia Hall, a U.S. citizen working for the British as a spy in the French Resistance. The lower half of one of her legs was wooden, and she was able somehow to successfully hide that fact. At one time, she was on the most wanted list by the Nazis throughout the end of the war, but how obvious would she be with a wooden leg? You would have thought they could have found her. Most people do not realize how important the French resistance was to the war effort. They were not organized initially, and Virginia did an amazing job to bring the different groups together. The French resistance does not get much military credit, and people underestimate what they did. Of course, much of that stems from how quickly they fell to the Nazis, and most of that is from the fact that the French military leader was suffering from advanced venereal disease and was experiencing paranoia, among other symptoms. He did not launch a defensive counterattack until two days after the invasion, and by then it was way too late. We'll talk more about that on a second. The French resistance carried out a lot of sabotage, and more importantly, they provided the Allies with significant intelligence. When France fell, the British military raided all the travel agencies in search of maps. They did not have any good maps of France, and then as the war progressed, of course, the Germans built military bases and other fortifications that the Allies would have had no way of knowing about them except for the French resistance reporting on them. Two books that told the inside story of how the Germans were so successful in the early part of the war are Blitzed and the Rommel Papers. Blitz tells the story of how the military got hooked on meth. The invasion of France required the tanks to go around the Maginot Line through the Ardennes with mountain roads and swamps. Not exactly a tank-friendly territory or even a foot-soldier-friendly territory. They knew the only chance they had to succeed was to move swiftly, so they turned to their medical staff looking for a way to help the troops stay awake and effective for at least 48 hours. And the answer was crystal meth. 
Every soldier was given a vial of pills with instructions on how often to take them. General Guderian devised and led this invasion, and in, in later years, the surviving tank soldiers talked about how high they were, how fun it was, and blasting down the roads at top speed in the tanks for days. The pills not only gave them superior endurance, but it also lowered any fear of death. They appeared to be super soldiers, and they didn't sleep for a week at a time. In the Rommel papers, Rommel discusses the strategy of always moving forward. If someone starts shooting at you from the side, send machine gun fire their way and keep moving. More often than not, the enemy would flee. The infantry would mop up behind the tanks, and the tanks were moving so fast an order would come from high command to stop at this location or pause here, but by the time the order arrived, the army was 10 or 20 miles past that location already. The German high command did not expect such speed, and it made him nervous. Just as important, the Germans were so well organized and disciplined, their supply lines were actually keeping pace. One of the mysteries to me was how they let Dunkirk happen. I mean, they had the British Army trapped and pinned against the English Channel, and the Army had tried to come up from the north to cut off the Germans, but they were driven back immediately to Dunkirk. Then, as they were about to crush the British, the Germans abruptly stopped. It gave them time for the evacuation of the British Army, a famous story, there's a great movie about it, which at the time was nearly half their forces. It would have been devastating to England had the Germans pressed on. The Blitz book explained it. The book was written by a German doctor who did extensive research, including the diary and official records of Hitler's personal doctor. Those kind of records are scattered all across the world based on which ally got what records. So it took several years of research to complete his book. And he revealed that Hermann Goring was addicted to morphine as a result of injuries he sustained in the failed push several years earlier that also sent Hitler to prison. He was worried the success of the army would overshadow the Air Force and reduce his influence with Hitler, so he convinced Hitler that Hitler alone was the commander-in-chief of the military and he should halt the army to show them who was in charge. He was telling him that the generals were out there running on their own and disregarding Hitler. So Hitler then ordered the famous halt order. It lasted for three days, and there are plenty of ideas today as to how this happened. Most of them don't make a whole lot of sense and are not backed up by any real evidence. The German Air Force, however, continued the attack the British on the beach, which adds support to the idea of the conversation with Hitler and Goring. And the way it was written, I believe it was taken from eyewitness reports. I read a book on the spy and espionage happenings in World War II. The U.S. was slow to enter the game of spycraft, but the British were masters of deception and propaganda. For example, the Allies had developed a radar that could fit into a two-engine fighter bomber. So when Germany began night bombing, the British were able to shoot down a huge number of their planes at night, way more than would have happened by random chance. The British did not want the Germans to speculate there might be some sort of technological edge there and start looking for the answer or maybe develop themselves. So 
The British spies got together with a British magazine and did a story on night fighter pilots. The success of the fighters was brought up in the story, and the pilots claimed that eating lots of carrots improved the eyesight and especially night vision. They photographed bowls of carrots in all the flight operations rooms. The pilots said they put them out everywhere, and they ate them all the time. Well, I grew up being told eating carrots would improve your eyesight. It's a common belief today if you go Google it, and yet it was all made up by British intelligence. Now, to illustrate how poor the United States was at the spy game, I read a book about Wild Bill Donovan. He's considered the father of the CIA, and he was appointed by Roosevelt to be the main connection between all the military branches, gather intelligence, and distribute it to all of them. But it turns out his personal secretary was a spy for Stalin. He had no idea. It came out many years later. Many of the books discuss and show how naive Roosevelt was when it came to the communists. He stated more than once how he trusted and liked Stalin. It was never intended for Russia to take over all of Eastern Europe and half of Germany. And Roosevelt supported the Chinese communists because Japan had a million troops there fighting them. I find it interesting the Japanese and the Germans thought the communists were one of the biggest threats in their world. But by keeping the Chinese communists fighting the Japanese, it kept a million Japanese troops out of fighting the U.S. But the soft line he took with all the communists haunts us to this day. Another fascinating book is Racing for the Bomb. It's the story of Leslie Groves. He was the general in charge of the Manhattan Project. Again, it was written from diaries and eyewitness accounts, many from interviews that were conducted after the war, and it's fascinating how they accomplished the goal. Groves was an unknown king of his realm. It was so secret almost no one knew about it. Groves had an unlimited budget and top priority for resources, and it wasn't even oversaw by Congress or any civilian authority. Gross had an uncanny ability to pick the right people for the right job, such as Oppenheimer, and he developed the compartmentalized security methods we use to this day. It was pretty airtight until the British wanted to see our program and our progress in person. Groves was overruled because he didn't want it to happen, and we allowed British scientists to come work at Los Alamos. He instructed the British to conduct strict background checks on everyone, even with ideas on how to complete it, but the British didn't follow his directions. They didn't do any background checks, and a communist spy was among the group. The top three projects the government spent money on during World War II were the Manhattan Project, of course, the Norden bomb site, and the most expensive was the B-29 long-range bomber. Now, the last two items are discussed in a book called The Bomber Mafia. It was a group of early military pilots well before World War I, and they had a dream of this precision bombing campaign being carried out by high-altitude, long-range bombers, such as the B-29. And the idea was a cleaner war as such. The bombers would fly too high for fighters. They wouldn't need fighter escorts. The bombing would be so precise, so they only hit the specific targets they wanted and limit civilian casualties. The Norden bomb site was supposed to fulfill that ideal, but it failed miserably. 
In Europe, the British would carpet bomb at night. They lost so many planes to fighters during the day that they decided it was safer to bomb at night, and the Americans frowned on the carpet bombing of entire areas. So we decided to bomb during the day so we could clearly see our targets. The claim of the Norden bomb site was you could drop a bomb in a pickle barrel from 30,000 feet. The reality, nowhere close to that. The concept was great. They put a lot of work into it. They hand-polished ball bearings. They did all kinds of things to make it accurate. It just never worked. The Americans planned a raid on a German ball bearing factory, and ball bearings were used in almost every war machine, jeeps, motorcycles, tanks, airplanes. And so they decided if they took out the ball bearings, they would cripple all those war-producing industries at once. They conducted two raids and managed to hit the factory only three or four times with a few bombs damaging a couple roofs. The rest hit the town around the plant. General Curtis LeMay was leading those bearing plant missions, and the U.S. lost a lot of planes and it always haunted him. Until the arrival of the P-51 in 1944, there were no fighter escorts on those long-range missions, so the bombers were practically defenseless. Before his experience in Europe, he had been a bomber mafia devotee. He believed in precision bombing. And, of course, actual conditions proved to him it was not possible. Near the end of 1944, he was put in charge of the Pacific Theater for bombing Japan. Another bomber mafia general was there having no success. Just to be sure, LeMay ran three more missions to try the precision bombing tactics, but it was even worse in Japan. Pilots were reporting 200-mile-an-hour tailwinds and headwinds, which no one believed. It turns out it was the jet stream, which had not been discovered yet, and the jet stream goes right across Japan. So finally, LeMay resorted to carpet bombing. The end of the Bomber Mafia book was about a discussion the author had with the current Air Force leadership. They discussed how only in the last few years has the technology developed to realize the dream. They were sitting in the backyard of the commanding general's house discussing this topic, and they told the author that now a brand new pilot would be expected if ordered to do so to blow the chimney off the house and not damage the rest of the house. It's so precise, they said, they can hit certain floors of a building. It's a little bit terrifying to think about that. I'm also most of the way through a book about Japan. There's lots of conversations by individuals and leaders during the World War II. Stories from a field nurse all the way up to the Japanese emperor, plus some accounts from the Allied side. I love the personal accounts, so you get the sense of how everyone was feeling and understand how they were thinking. The high level of misunderstanding and error in the translations between the diplomats contributed highly to the war with Japan. Before that, they considered the United States a friend, and it was really wild how many Japanese attended college here before the war. Deep down, they really didn't want a war with the United States, and seeing another perspective is all part of that growing I talk about. Plus, you can learn from the mistakes of the past. Maybe I can discuss this particular book in another episode, but this episode has been a lot more about World War II than I intended. I want to cover good self-improvement books next time, so be sure and tune in next week, and we'll talk about some really good positive stuff you can read. We're always interested to hear what you think. 
please go to our website, yourguidetothegoodstuff.com, and leave us feedback. That's Y-O-U-R, guidetothegoodstuff.com. You can also reach out at our email, yourguidetothegoodstuff at gmail.com. New episodes are released every Monday and can be found wherever you get your podcast. As an added benefit, if you sign up for our email, you will receive a synopsis of what Monday's episode is about on the Sunday before. Plus, you'll get any links we share and behind-the-scenes photos delivered to your email on the Monday after the episode is released. In the meantime, have a fantastic week, and as my friend would always say, Arrivederci. 